We are in the middle of this uh, Christmas uh, series, and we called it Unlikely, um, because there's so many uh, unlikely characters that find themselves wrapped up in the Christmas story, right? And while we even mention unlikely here, let me say, if you have little ones that decide they want to be loud during this, that is no problem, okay? Just be at peace, be at ease. We're a small little gathering tonight, family, family church, so just relax and we'll have some fun. And then we're going to close out with a little, little candlelight song. So uh, unlikely, though, so we started with um, a guy named John the Baptist, and he was a strange character who actually wore scratchy camel hair, and he wore this, uh, like, a leather sash. And then we jumped over and talked about Joseph, who was a middle-aged um, poor man, who was also a carpenter or, or probably more likely a stonemason. And then we flipped over and talked about Mary. Um, so Mary's this 13-year-old girl poor, illiterate, um, and we're going we're gonna to kind of land this tonight by talking about the shepherds. So I'm in Luke uh, 2, if you want to turn there, and we're going to read verse 8 um, through verse 14. But I was sort of reflecting on an author that I love um, by the name of C.S. Lewis. Anybody know C.S. Lewis? Love, love C.S. Lewis. And in my opinion, one of his great masterpieces is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and that, that Narnia series. And what's fascinating to me is um, in that Narnia um, series, there's a, a scene with um, a, a, a Lucy, I think it was, and one of the woodland animals, and there's this uh, quiet snow that is falling all around them. And Lucy has just shown up um, into Narnia, and uh, it, it at first seems like the snow is just delightful. But as Lucy is, is listening and understanding more and more, what she hears is that there is this witch who has literally a curse on the whole land of Narnia. And they're cursed with uh, eternal winter. Anybody know? With no Christmas. See, there's this thing that is the eternal winter, and, and you never get to Christmas. And, you know, I don't think what C.S. Lewis was talking about in that moment was necessarily um, the gifts or the trees or the lights. I think all that is, is beautiful and great and fun for us even to gather around as families. But there is something um, in our lives that at points can begin to feel like eternal winter. And in fact, I would even look at 2020 and go, 2020's eternal winter started sometime in early March. And it just seems like it hasn't stopped. It just has gone on and on and on. And I've talked to a number of people coming up to the holidays, and, and Christmas can be particularly painful. For some of us, uh, there's seats around our family table that are empty, that once were filled. Or perhaps they're empty because uh, someone is stranded in another part of the world and you can't get back connected with one another. There's also people who have stockings that are hung with maybe a name on them that is no longer here. Or perhaps someone's even hung a stocking in hopes that a little one would be here and that little one has not yet arrived or has not even been conceived. But Christmas is oddly painful and strange, and yet I think what C.S. Lewis is actually bringing to the forefront and what I really want to use the shepherds to highlight is there is uh, the hope and opportunity, even in the pain, uh, to be gently led by the Holy Spirit to uncover the deeper meaning of Christmas. What are we really here for? What is Christmas really? So 
I want to open up and read Luke 2. We're going to start in verse 8. But as we do that, if you're, I don't know if you've got a paper Bible. I love a paper Bible because I write all over it, highlight things and put dates and whatever. But in, in my Bible, um, chapter 2 starts out, and I don't know if you can see it. I'm going to hold it up like this. But there's this first chunk, and this is where Jesus is born. Okay, And then you have um, about the same size, two additional chunks, and I have one a little bit on this back page, that's about these guys named, anybody know? Shepherds. Now, isn't it fascinating that, that Luke, so this, Luke was actually a doctor, he was a Gentile, he wasn't even a Hebrew, but isn't it interesting that Luke thought it was so um, important that he took, uh, maybe we'll just call that 33% of the chapter, um, and, and talked about the birth of Jesus, and then he took 66% of this chunk that we're looking at, and he talked about shepherds. So I think the question immediately becomes, like, what is so important about these shepherds? And probably more importantly, what is important about the heart of God? And who is this God that he would spend so much more time talking about the shepherds than about the birth of this Jesus? And I think one of the things you immediately begin to see is there's um, an external focus or value. So Jesus is born, and that, it's, a, it's a triumphal moment. But then there's this external focus on taking the message to even the shepherds. So let's start to read this and then unpack it. <clears throat> Starting in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Now, let me, let's just start there a second. So these guys were living where? Inside or Outside. Okay, so we're living outside. Anybody ever backpacked a portion of the Appalachian Trail? Any takers? I got one over here, Jimmy. I got one over. Okay, cool. Um, so a couple of you all. And, and when you met a through hiker, what were they like? They were a surly bunch, right? I mean, a through hiker means someone who's hiking from like Maine to Georgia or Georgia to Maine. They're, they're, you know, but typically, they're, uh, if they have hair on their head, it's really long, unshaven. They smell bad. They've been living outside for months and months. Now, let's go back here. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. I wonder what they smelled like. I mean, serious. We spend so much time thinking of the Christmas story as this clean, neat, tidy, and it's just not. The people God reveals himself to most powerfully are often the stinkiest. Can I say that? In church with my little red tie on. The people that God's heart is after are the ones who are actually stuck out there and are frequently not welcome in to the Christian uh, sort of religious establishment because we wear things like ties and we we tend to smell better. But look who Jesus goes after. There are shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, let me uh, make another um, couple points here. This is a group of um, people who are outcast in society. So shepherds in this day were absolutely hated. So if you know, uh, let me educate you just a little bit about the Hebrew um, or the Mosaic laws um, or the mitzvah laws that these people had to adhere to. It it actually included a lot of washing, hand washing, body washing, ritual washing, and they didn't have much room for through hikers from the Appalachian Trail. So they were, these people were, um, the shepherds were immediately uh, hated, uh, rejected, looked down upon. They were literally the lowest members of society. So just, just pause there a minute and let's, um, I, I would actually invite you to gaze upon the person of Jesus. I would invite you to gaze upon this God because first you have a 13-year-old girl who is illiterate who becomes the mother of Jesus. You've got uh, an impoverished Joseph who works with his hands, who becomes uh, the stepfather 
Not biological father, stepfather. You've got John the Baptist that's part of this story, and then you've got the shepherds who are part of this story. And they are literally hated. So the religious people, the church people, if you will, the pastors, uh, uh, like me, right? Um, They would have literally looked down on and rejected and despised this group of people that Jesus goes after and thinks they're so important that he's going to take two-thirds of this chunk of what we're looking at and dedicate it to the shepherds. Now, another thing I think is really important as we, as we look at this is it's possible, um, let me also educate you on this, uh, Bethlehem is a little bit south of Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem is a place called the temple, and at the temple, under that, the old Hebrew law, they would take a lamb that had no blemishes and no spots, so a perfect lamb, and twice a day, at least, they would take a lamb up to that temple, and they would actually kill the lamb, and the blood would be shed, Okay. So there's nowhere in Scripture that says there are Levitical shepherds. Levites were just the priests. But I think it's at least worth considering. I've read a number of different people who actually suggest that there are Levitical shepherds. So in other words, shepherds whose sole job um, is to, right outside of Jerusalem, which is Bethlehem, would be to actually raise these lambs that are spotless and blemish-free. So it's very likely that these weren't just any shepherds, but these were actually special shepherds that were actually uh, called or commissioned to raise and watch over these little lambs um, and actually wrap the lambs in swaddling clothes and then eventually deliver the lambs to the temple to be killed. So little background, let's keep going. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to who? You. Baby Jesus. (laughs) That is my little girl back there. Baby Jesus. Thank you, Amelia. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths. That's what my my Bible says. Many translations actually say swaddling cloths. We're going to come back to that. But wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God. Now, let me make a note here for you, too. Uh, Typically, when a baby was born um, in a Jewish village or a Hebrew village in this day, there'd be all these people that would gather, and they would actually sing, and sing over the baby, and and, uh, just make this sort of a a beautiful um, noise. Now, remember, Mary and Joseph lived in a place called Nazareth, and they've just journeyed to Bethlehem. So are they home? No. Do they have any neighbors that know them here? No. So was there anyone, was there anyone who uh, came and sang over this baby like that would have been done in a traditional rabbinic uh, neighborhood? No. So, so, so instead, who does God send to sing over this baby? Let's read it again. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host. In the Old Testament, uh, this God is known as the God of the angel armies or the God of the, the uh, angel hosts. But here it is. Uh, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. 
So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and open our minds, open our eyes. And Lord, allow us not just to see these shepherds for who they are. Would you allow us to find ourselves and find you in this story for the purpose of us walking out of this place, having taken another step closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So <clears throat> I think if we um, probably step back and, and look at this for just a minute, I want to point out a few things. Um, it's fascinating that in John 10, verse 11, Jesus refers to himself, does anybody know, as the good shepherd. Yeah, very interesting. If you look at the Greek there, which I think is just important to mention, that literally is a Greek ego I me, which translates I, I am, or I am God, I am the good shepherd. And it's also fascinating that Jesus is not only the good shepherd, and, and isn't it wild that he would identify with a group of hated people in society? Like, isn't that wild that our Jesus, like, chooses to identify with himself as the good shepherd? I mean, that is, that's kind of mind-blowing to me. It's also fascinating that Jesus literally becomes the lamb. So you remember when I told you these lambs that are, are killed to cover uh, the sin of the people twice a day? Jesus literally becomes the lamb. So, so Jesus has experienced, uh, and when he, when he goes to the hill called Golgotha, and he dies crucified, and then he He's killed, he then goes into a tomb, and he raises again in three days. He, he fulfills all of those sort of Old Testament laws, kind of the back half of the Bible, that say that in order for us to be forgiven of our sins, which we all have, right? Even me, pastors, right? Professional Christians. Um, but in order to be forgiven, blood has to be shed. And so Jesus became the lamb. He became um, the ultimate sacrifice. And so I think another thing that's fascinating is that God in the Old Testament actually refers to himself um, as the good shepherd. So David in the 23rd Psalm says, uh, refers to God as the good shepherd. And there's over nine places in the Old Testament where God identifies, self-identifies as a good shepherd. It's also interesting because you can really begin to look at the Old Testament and then the New, and you begin to go, wow, in the Old Testament, um, there's good kings and bad kings, and sometimes they're referred to as, anybody know? Shepherds. And then in the New Testament, there's a different kind of shepherds. They're called, anybody have a guess? Pastors. And there's good pastors and bad pastors. It's just the way it's always been. But it's fascinating to me that God only identifies himself as the good shepherd. He identifies um, his son, Jesus, as the good shepherd. And then Jesus identifies literally as a sheep who's gone to a cross and paid for it all. So when, <clears throat> if in fact um, these uh, so-called shepherds that just walked in or the angel walked into them and they go to find Mary and Joseph, if they were sort of Levitical shepherds, one of the things that they would have done is they would have taken special cloths and they would have wrapped their little blemishless sheep um, in these swaddling cloths. And what did Jesus get wrapped in? 
literally a swaddling cloth. So what you begin to see is God has actually selected the only people that come when Jesus was actually born on this particular night were the shepherds. And so God is literally connecting sort of all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. I love it because God's not only in the details, in the micro, but he's in the macro. He's putting it all together. And he literally is um, bringing the very shepherds who are responsible for raising up these sheep that are killed at the temple to cover your sin and mine. And not only that, he's bringing the people that wrap them in those swaddling clothes, and Mary doesn't have a suitcase full of clothes or full of, you know, little Carter baby outfits that she can put her kid in. No, no, no. She takes these little swaddling clothes from the shepherd, and that's what she wraps baby Jesus in. So literally, when the shepherds arrived at this birthplace of Jesus, they find a baby um, born in the same place the Passover lambs were born, uh, or, or uh, swaddled in the same clothes that the Passover lambs are literally swaddled in, and it points to the fact that this baby who has just come is not just a baby. He is the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. So the, the, the sort of magnitude of this thing is so big, and I think immediately you begin to see from God's perspective, we're going to tell you just a little bit about the birth of Jesus, and it's important, but bigger than that, I want to put that, God, I believe, wants to put it into the context of the, the entirety of Scripture so that you grasp. This is not just a baby. This is the baby. This is the Messiah. This is the Jewish Savior who is destined to become not just the Jewish Messiah, but the Savior of the entire world. So you have baby Jesus wrapped in the same thing that these shepherds come walking in. I believe it was probably like a bolt of lightning in the shepherd's soul. And if anybody was equipped to understand it, it's these ragged um, people who were living outside. And I think they walked in and they saw this little baby wrapped in the same claws they used, sitting in a manger, born in the same place. And they went, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior of the world. And they got it. So my first point that I want to highlight for you today is God provides a Savior that is born to, what does verse 211 say? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. You. Everybody say me. Now turn to somebody and say you. A Savior has been born to you. I love this God because this God is the creator of heaven and earth, and yet this God is the God who is intensely personal and wants to journey with each of us every single day of our life through the good, the bad, the ugly, and the difficult. And the angels literally show up and say, this is the one who has been born, a Savior born to you. So when we get the direct and immediate revelation of God, like these shepherds got in this verse 11, we are literally um, faced with a choice. Are we going to follow the signs? Are we going to follow what he's putting in front of us to find this God, to find his will and his way? And, and I would say uh, two things on this. Um, this is true uh, if you're a non-believer tonight. If you don't know this Jesus and you come in here going, I don't know who Jesus is, this is true for you. The question is going to become, will you follow the signs and the things that he's planted in your life to find the Savior? It's also true for us as believers, because many of us as believers are not actively listening and following this Jesus in the journey on every day. It's difficult, isn't it? It's hard, maybe, to keep in step with him. So as uh, non, um, if, if, if you're a non-Jesus person, if you're a non-believer at this present moment, there's a responsibility to respond to this initial revelation of God and surrender your life, give your life. 
If you're a Christian, then I think our job is actually to actively respond to him, to his leadership, to the revelation of the Holy Spirit in our lives and follow those signs to seek to um, walk after him in every area of our life, right? That's what this thing is about. So it's a daily, probably, journey to Jesus. You know, I think as a general rule, um, and what I love here is uh, w- these angels, eventually they disappeared, and then what are the shepherds left to do? They have to make a choice. Are they going to follow the sign? Are they going to go seek after this Jesus, or are they just going to go back to sleep? So, you know, I think as a general rule, uh, we Christians, we, we church people, tend to make these massive presumptions about what we think God is doing, um, how we think God ought to do it. Come on, some of you know what I'm talking about now. And then we often spend most of our time and energy trying to help God make the things happen that we think ought to happen. Instead of actually stepping back like these shepherds, they didn't want to go hike into Bethlehem that night. They're sitting around the fire, they're hanging out, they're eating, they're telling jokes, or else they're sleeping, they're doing their thing, and all of a sudden the angels mess them all up. Boom. They're terrified. And then the angels disappear, and they have this choice. Am I going to respond to a holy God? Will I follow him? I think almost every generation has a responsibility to find out what God's doing and follow it. And as a general rule, by the time the larger population gets it, God's moved on to the next thing. You know what I'm saying? That's a funny, uh, it's God is often doing the thing that we expect the least. He's focused on the area that not everyone else is looking at. Go, just think about this little Bethlehem, this little baby, all the who's who in Jerusalem and around the the nation of Israel. They don't even care. Caesar in his palace in Rome doesn't care. And yet all of history hinge pins, even the dates and the way we date, the before Christ and after, and we've changed that to now common area, but regardless, it all hinges on the birth of this little baby. So God always provides signs for those searching for a Savior. Always. He provided it to these shepherds. He will provide a sign for those searching for a Savior. And on the other side of this life, there's eternal light in the presence of Jesus, and there would be eternal darkness if we're separated from him. And the character of God probably dictates that we come to understand this divine love and that we recognize that he reveals himself both directly like he did to the shepherds and then he requires uh, that we follow those signs. So I love it here because in verse 15, uh, you literally um, have, uh, when the angels had left them and gone back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's follow this thing. Let's follow the signs. And the shepherd, the angels gave the shepherds two signs. The first one was this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, which they were very familiar with. The second was this baby would be in a manger. And we tend to, in all of the, our Western idea of what a manger looks like, we tend to put Mary and Joseph like in a little barn or a shed or a lean-to or whatever. But, but if you actually go and hike around the hills around Bethlehem, which I've done, what you find there is dozens and dozens and dozens of caves. And if you walk into these caves, what you find is the roof of the cave will be just covered in black, smoky soot from guess who? Shepherds. 
And what's fascinating is in these caves are often areas that have either been hand-carved out um, or natural areas in the rock uh, where these shepherds would literally take grass or take hay or take straw, whatever they were feeding their, their animals, and they'd shove them in what's called a manger in the side of this rock. Now, this would have been different if you're out in the middle of the desert, but when you're near Bethlehem, a manger was literally uh, carved out of the solid rock. And so Mary literally has Jesus and she lays him in the manger. And in this case, most likely around Bethlehem, she laid him in a little hole in the rock wall. And so the sign when these shepherds walk in, when they finally find uh, this Jesus, they walk in and they see him wrapped in the swaddling cloth and they see him stuck in a little manger. And they know this is the Messiah. This is the God. So God always provides signs for those who are actively searching for a Savior. Number three, I think this is probably key, is that our response as people uh, must be that we respond to him and search for him. In in other words, let me say it like this. God always uh, searches the earth, I believe, looking for hearts that are hungry for him. You know, it's fascinating because the church uh, right now around the world is growing most rapidly um, in Iran and in China. And, And it's the hardest place to be a Christian. It's the most dangerous place to be a Christian. And yet we have more people coming to Christ, more churches being built because people are hungry. They are hungry. And I think actually probably one of the greatest um, dangers is this direct correlation between how hungry we are and how much of the presence and power of God exists in our lives. If I even was vulnerable for just a minute, I would actually say um, my greatest challenge as a man, as a believer, as a pastor, is to stay hungry and not lose my first love, Jesus. And I would actually say to you that the great risk of the American church experience right this moment, and I would say it is a great risk, greater than you have any idea, is that we are satiated and comfortable and therefore not hungry. And the presence and power and the purpose of God will only descend on people who are hungry people who want him. And so you have these shepherds who suddenly get this revelation of this Christ child, and they choose to get up and they go seek out. They show that they are hungry. They show that they want to follow this Messiah. There is a direct proportion between how much of the presence of God you have in your life, how much holiness you experience, how much of his glory you actively see, and how hungry you are. My fourth point this evening is that our response should be to worship him. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. Why do we sing in church? Anybody ever wonder that? Like, we always sing in church, and some of us like music and some of us don't. But you're like, why do we sing in church? Why does it matter? Who who cares, you might say. I've heard people go, I don't like the music part, so I just come in late. I'm like, it it doesn't really matter what we put in a church service. I don't think that's the point. But the point is that when you encounter this holy God, when you encounter this creator God who created the beginning and the end, who knows your name, who knit you together, who foreordained even your purpose on earth, when you encounter him, you cannot help but erupt in absolute worship, heartfelt abandon. And if I have any prayer for this church is that we would break through merely singing songs 
Nothing wrong with singing songs, but breakthrough into heartfelt worship, which is, I am now lost in the glory and presence of my Jesus. I, am, I don't care what the person next to me is saying, and I don't care what they're doing, because I am now interacting even supernaturally with this God. We are not trying to come together to uh, put something together that necessarily looks good or sounds good or is perfect. No, no, no. We are actually creating an opportunity for broken, busted, shepherd-like people to walk through doors and encounter the saving grace and life of Christ Jesus. That's what church is about. That's what the Jesus story is about. And that's why Jesus chose to reveal himself to the shepherds. May God birth a worship movement in and through this little church. My last point this evening is, I love it, let's read it together. It's Luke 2, verses 17 and 18. When they, the shepherds, had seen him, who's him? Jesus. Who's him, Amelia? Jesus. When they had seen him, they spread the word. Now say that with me, spread the word. They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. Now, you might actually say to me tonight, you might go, Michael, um, honestly, I am not that excited about spreading the word of God. I have those days. I have those days, honestly. There's days where I sit out there and I have to get up and preach. Lord Jesus, help me. Now, let's dig a little deeper on there. I, I, would, I would throw out three possibilities. There's probably more, but three possibilities. Perhaps you have not fully experienced the saving grace. You haven't drunk deeply of the grace and the person of Jesus because just like these shepherds who feel outcast, who feel like second-class citizens, who feel like they're not important, who feel like they don't measure up, who then God calls into the absolute most important thing of the day, not just the day, the most important thing of all eternity. He takes the busted and the broken and he brings them up. It, 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 is, it is literally, you, you may not have experienced the love of this God at the level that you go, I am hungry now, not only for his presence, but to spread the word. That's what these shepherds walked out and did. It also is possible that you have not fully embraced that he's got a call and a destiny on your life to share the word, to be a mouthpiece that points people to Jesus. Or perhaps you've lost your first love. You know, and worship Band team, would you guys come back up? That was so beautiful, by the way, worshiping with you all. I'm convinced that this God is the God who's going after the shepherds. That's who he is. And then he wants to take shepherds and he wants to make them worshipers. And he wants to make them mouthpieces who have a purpose and a destiny, who actually share the word. That's what this God is, and that's who this God is all about. I think I want to ask you a couple of questions as we do this last song, and we're going to do it by candlelight. But here are my questions. I have three of them. Will you as a person, whether you're watching online, whether you're here in the room, but will you as a person respond to the signs that he's given you and search for him? Will you as a person worship this Jesus? And will you as a person spread the word once you've drunk deeply of his love?
in his presence.